the part that I wanted to get into though is certifying the uh, the supply chain because it you can have a farmer and you know this is my my conundrum now is we have these farmers that are doing awesome work in their vineyard that aren't doing no till that are working on regenerative organic that are pushing towards biodynamics they're doing all of the right stuff in their vineyards and they're sequestering carbon and then I go and pick it up in a pick up their wine in a diesel truck and ship it to a warehouse that's running refrigeration off grid electricity and then ship it again in another diesel truck down to California and then another warehouse and then another truck to get it to a final consumer or actually not even a final consumer because then it's going to a, a wine shop that will possibly ship it again. So every time we put that bottle in another box or on another truck, we're just adding this to our carbon footprint and taking away from the hard work that the vineyards are doing already. Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Organic Wine Podcast featuring James Endicott of Venocity Selections. I'm your host and creator, coming to you from Los Angeles, Adam Huss. James Endicott created Venocity Selections with his partners to leverage wine to tackle climate change by revolutionizing the supply chain. Venocity Selections is a wine importing, distribution, and retail hub all in one. The Venocity Selections website, venocityselections.com, makes it clear that this company begins with agriculture, specifically viticulture that is, quote, beyond organic. It makes the bold claim that agriculture is the climate solution, wine is our first step. And James accomplishes this by curating and promoting a client list of wine producers who make wine from regeneratively farmed vineyards as a first step. The big problems he is trying to solve, and that are relevant to everyone in wine, is how to create a supply chain that protects and enhances the good work that these producers are doing in the vineyard. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation because James cares so deeply about the problems he's trying to solve, and we went deep into some of the big questions facing the wine industry. Also, I want to give a special thanks to Lisa Bauer of Yamakiri Wines. She introduced me to James, and this episode wouldn't have been possible without her generous spirit. You can hear my interview with Lisa on episode 24. Enjoy! James, thanks for coming on the Organic Wine Podcast. How are you? I'm terrific. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> uh, could you start by just introducing yourself and your company uh, in any way that you'd like? Yeah, we're a little tiny. I, I mean, we're a small wine importer and distributor here in California and in New York City. Um, we've been around for about three and a half years. Actually, no. What are you called? Uh, Venocity. I'm sorry. Venocity Selections. That's uh, my company. I started about right. th about three years ago. Actually, no. Yeah, that was it. I started three years ago. Um, okay. It was, a, I kind of, I moved out here to California from New York and worked for another importer and distributor and just didn't, I didn't jive with the ethos of the company or the wines, but they got me to California, which was a big goal for me. Um, I love a, I love the weather. Um, I've been in New York for 15 years and just was tired of winters. But <laughs> I also wanted to be closer to the wine production. And there's something special about California. A friend of mine, uh, he described it as the wild west of wine. And what he meant by that is you can have all these crazy licenses. In no other state is it legal to import and be a distributor 
and I have a direct-to-consumer retail license. It's pretty close to vertical integration in this business, and it's impossible. And you have, uh, Venocity has all of that, right? Correct. But it was- Yeah, at first I thought you were just- Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the unique things about Venocity that I realized after, you know, looking more into it. At first, I just thought it was distribution. Then it's like, wait, this is a retail shop as well. And and you, and then clearly you have imported wine. So all of that, all together, it's very cool uh, thing. uh, It's only only really available in California to be vertically integrated like that. Uh, And so I moved out here to start this company. Uh, in the back of my head even though i worked for another one it was always a stepping stone to my own my own importer and the only the only reason i wanted to do it myself is i just no one else had the same value system that i did uh, at least three or four or five years ago and that's the part that i i think you know it wasn't that you just wanted to move to california because you could uh, circumvent the other state laws i think you had a real ethos ethos about wine that I, I think we share and i think that's that's why well, you're here that's why i wanted to talk to it's, you, it's, you I, the ethos is formed over you know over many years i think really found its true footing about two years ago i had already i had already started venocity and i wanted i knew i wanted to work with organic and biodynamic producers but i didn't I didn't make the connection between organics and biodynamics and climate. And sometime about three years ago, maybe four, right about when I was considering Venocity, when I was considering creating this company, um, I was at a real conundrum. Do I start a wine company that continues to operate in the same way that all the other wine companies do? And then creates this massive carbon footprint through shipping and through bottling and through all the different things that we do in our industry. Um, Do I just keep playing by the same rules? And I kind of had a little bit of a crisis. I didn't know if I wanted to even stay in the wine business. I thought maybe just leave entirely and try to find a job in climate. Um, I had realized about four or five years ago that climate breakdown is actually happening in real time around us. And I've got a sense of urgency, a new sense of urgency about how we find solutions to the coming catastrophe. And they're not really solutions for today. They're not solutions for our lifetime even, they're solutions for our grandkids. And so Mm -hmm. when I started to think about things on that timeframe, seemed like a good time to go ahead and start a company based on these principles that maybe climate solutions should be part of the foundation of whatever new companies we build from now on. Um, So I stayed in wine. Um, It took a, it took a lot of back and forth and I did a lot of soul searching and had, had some revelatory moments where I realized that in the wine business, we really have this, crazy access point to wealth and uh, financial excess that you don't have in other agricultural industries. And I had worked in, you know, some of the best restaurants in the world and sold incredible wines with these gargantuan price tags. And it, they, they open a conversation with 
the 1% that, you know, coming from Oklahoma, I never had uh, the opportunity to rub shoulders or elbows with the, with the 1% on the level that I did working in New York fine dining. And so here I am in fine dining and you've got these opportunities to communicate a story to the 1% who have the money and have the opportunity to make changes on a vast level. And I started to make that connection. Like wine is our, wine is our access point to, to real ability to make change. And it may, may not be me making the change, someone else, but it's creating that dialogue and creating the conversation. And I guess what the conversation that I'm thinking about is, is that climate solutions are completely intertwined with agriculture. And we don't get out of our climate uh, crisis without completely rethinking our agricultural systems. Like we've been pulling carbon out of the ground for you know, 150 years since the industrial revolution, but we haven't been putting it back. And until we start putting it back in the ground, we're not going to get to the equilibrium where our grandkids are going to be able to go snow skiing. Right. I want my, if, if I have grandkids, I want them to enjoy snow skiing. That would be <laughs> stinking awesome, but it's not going to happen unless, and, and I really don't think it's going to happen, but there may be on the outside chance if we converted half of the, uh, if we converted half of the world's agriculture to regenerative, um, or regenerative organic, if we could add, say, 5% organic matter to 50% of the world's agricultural land, basically we hit climate reset. Like I started yeah. thinking those numbers. Like if, yeah. if there's weight to carbon, uh, one, if 1% 1 of carbon in the soil is worth 10,000 pounds of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, then you start to do the math. It took, took a little bit, but if you take half of the world's agricultural land, which is about 2 billion acres, and you add 5% organic matter at 10,000 pounds an acre, you can, pretty, you can get pretty close to the 600 gigatons of carbon we've added to the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. It, it takes a lot. And how do, you, how do you start to make changes on that much agricultural land? And that's where yeah. I... That's where I kept coming back to wine. It's a tiny piece of the puzzle as far as agricultural land goes. You know, it's less than 1% of all of the arable land in the world. However, it's got this outsize uh, voice, especially in the dining halls of New York and San Francisco and Europe where people have, have the wherewithal to make changes on land on that level. So anyway, yep. that's where I started. Um, I wanted this to be a, 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 I wanted Venocity to be a support for farmers that are doing the, the farming that I think we need to do to successfully accomplish this goal of, of climate remediation or carbon, carbon remediation from the atmosphere, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Yeah. Um, when I checked out your website for the first time, I was just sort of blown away. Like I was, you know, it's, it's rare that you see a wine distributor or wine retail shop where like one of the main, you know, besides the wine sale page for the, you know, the retail sales, the online sales, you know, the next 
biggest thing that you can find is the beyond organic page on the Venocity website. And it's all about what you just said. It's all about how it begins with the farming. It's really like, you know, what you're doing is promoting agriculture, a certain kind of agriculture that, that benefits the world rather than uh, destroys it. And of course that's where I jived and thought this was amazing and wanted to be part of it. Um, and wanted to talk to you and help promote that. I mean, I think, you know, just to, to feed on what you were saying, like, how does, how do we get to 2 billion acres? I mean, I think it takes all of us like working together. I think it, you can't do it yourself. You know, Certainly we can touch, not. right. I, you can touch people, but we're, that's, that's exactly what you're doing. You're trying to touch as many people as you can. I'm trying to reach out to as many people as I can and promote well, that idea and, and how important it is. At the time that I, I started on this little project, uh, my thought was, Two billion acres of land. I think that we've. I think we've increased it to like three and a half billion acres that we need to do this on. Uh, oh well. But my my thought was, how do you? So how do you do this? I've got access to maybe forty acres in Oklahoma that I could potentially run some kind of uh, carbon sequestration experiment on. And and you know, forty acres. If I did it correctly, I could offset most of my life's carbon footprint. But it's really yeah. it's really small considering the the weight of the world. So, um, but I I've I, actually heard more encouraging numbers than some of the ones you've thrown around. I mean, I, you're probably I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic in my numbers, and yeah, I, and I, yeah, and, and those I, are super conservative numbers. Yeah. I've heard like much more like if, if you know to really to just start things rolling back. It's it's a much smaller amount of. Uh, organic matter that we need to add to soils and carbon that we need to sequester before we, you know, because it starts heading in the right direction at a, at a, at a lower threshold than, you know, half of the agricultural land. Um, It might not solve the problems right away, but at least it stops the problems from continuing. I was very pessimistic in my numbers. Um, (laughs) And I, and I, and I was on, on purpose. I I don't think that, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the climate, literature out there gives us um, like these dire scenarios and those dire scenarios are based on uh, they're based on like fantasy math in a lot of respects when I was thinking about how to how to move the how to move the needle on that much agricultural land it really became this thing you can't do it altruistically I can't even if I were per se in the French laundry seven nights a week talking to the wealthiest people in the world and they wanted to help do this it's not an altruistic endeavor for them. Uh, you know, al- altruism runs out. It has to be some kind of economic model. And as much yeah. as I rail against capitalism, I also recognize that we're in this system. And as, soon, as long as we're in the system, people have to f- feed themselves and their families and they want to send their kids to college. So there has to be an economic incentive to get farmers to actually do this kind of farming. And that, that well, was when I started thinking about a uh, certification stamp. and. My original plan was we would start a certification stamp called CO2NEG that is actually a certification of farming, but there are plenty of people out there that certify farmers, and I didn't want to be one of those. So we would use, we would piggyback off somebody else's farming certifications, like Demeter, uh, who does biodynamic certification, or like the Rodale Institute, who has now their organic or their regenerative organic certification, which are which are certifications that have soil health at their foundation. So if we could piggyback on one of those, 
the part that I wanted to get into though is certifying the uh, the supply chain because it you can have a farmer and you know this is my my conundrum now is we have these farmers that are doing awesome work in their vineyard that aren't doing no till that are working on regenerative organic that are pushing towards biodynamics they're doing all of the right stuff in their vineyards and they're sequestering carbon and they're you know one guy's even growing azola on his water on his pond which is sequestering like three tons of carbon uh, per acre on freshwater like there are all these techniques that they're working and then i go and pick it up in a pick up their wine in a diesel truck and ship it to a warehouse that's running refrigeration off grid electricity and then ship it again in another diesel truck down to california and then another warehouse and then another truck to get it to a final consumer or actually not even a final consumer because then it's going to a, a wine shop that will possibly ship it again so every time we put that bottle in another box or on another truck. We're just adding this to our carbon footprint and taking away from the hard work that the vineyards are doing already. And right. that fixing the supply chain was very, was foremost in my thought because I can support all the farmers I want, but if I'm just polluting on the back end, I'm not doing any good for anybody. So that's where we're at now is working on supply chain. Um, originally, I thought we'd move to electric vehicles i've got our i've got our names on all of the truck lists for a tesla uh, class 8 semi i've got our name on the uh, zos which used to be called thor i've got the you know i've placed the deposits for these electric trucks and i'm waiting but it's been years and it's going to be more years because there are plenty of huge players in the industry like amazon that will have 100,000 trucks before i ever get my name on the list Right. You know, so there's, there's that with electric trucks. Then there's the buying a new vehicle or actually just buying anything new has a carbon weight to every dollar you spend. And especially a new vehicle like an like a Tesla who has rare earth metals and a ton of heat that goes into the construction of that vehicle. You're creating a giant carbon deficit just in the purchase of this new vehicle. Um, and then you're running the vehicle on grid electricity, which is still 40% from coal. You're still adding to the problem. You're making it, you're, maybe you're not adding as much as you were driving diesel trucks, but you're still adding to the problem. So then I, you just keep going backwards. The problem's huge and to get out of it. It <laughs> takes a lot of thought. Um, so right well, now we, we picked up a, 2003 Ford Power Stroke uh, diesel engine, uh, an old, it's an old people mover, like a, like a shuttle bus from a, a church. And okay. we're going to convert that over to run on waste vegetable oil, which was all the rage about 10 or 15 years ago. I'm very late to the game here. Right. We'll, right. we'll pick up the goal here is we close the loops on our, on our supply chain so that when we deliver to our restaurants, we can pick up their waste products. Um, the, the overall arching goal here, I'm getting really far afield. I know you can um, re redirect me, but the overarching goal is to create a carbon free um, supply chain. We'll run this truck on vegetable oil that is not fossil fuel. It's still combustion but the, all of the carbon from vegetable oil comes out of the atmosphere and not out of the ground. 
So we're just returning at atmospheric carbon back. But it's seen as a carbon negative technology because the growing and the creation of that oil is has carbon byproducts that are then hopefully composted. You know, the goal is that we'll someday maybe even make our own oil. Right now, we're going to pick it up from the restaurants that we work with and sell wine to. So when we deliver their wine, we'll pump out their waste vegetable oil and return that to our warehouse where it where it rectifies and settles out, and then we can use it as fuel uh, for our for our now fossil fuel free truck. The warehouse itself we don't have yet, so this is where we're running into you know there's financial hurdles that we're still trying to figure out a warehouse in south central la is kind of the goal we'd love to i've seen a couple places the 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 idea is space enough for us to store all of our wine cut the grid ties so that we can start creating our own electricity for said warehouse to to keep a warehouse off off the grid or to keep a warehouse cool enough to store wine we need to there's going to be some retrofitting. We want to do uh, earth, earthen buttresses up the mm-hmm. sides of the warehouse so yeah. we can actually use those earthen buttress sides as uh, as planting area for an urban garden. Um, wow. the, so the warehouse, in my mind, the warehouse is, uh, is kind of a catch-all. That sounds great. It, yeah. it stores our wine. It also stores wine. Hopefully, you know, I've talked to Roni about this. Roni selects. My goal is that we we carry, we handle the wine for a lot of small produ- or small distributors like us that have similar uh, similarly oriented values. Yeah. The goal is that we get us all off of off of fossil fuels and in in, in a warehouse. To do that, I I need more than just my wine because we can't supply. We can't pay the overhead on a warehouse for, for my small company, Venocity. So it would take right. several, several uh, small distributors like uh, us. And then, um, so the warehouse is in South Central. It's got about three times as much exterior uh, parking space than it does interior warehouse space. All of that parking is not needed. We only need two loading docks for the logistics that I plan to, to run out of this, this warehouse outside of those two loading docks, every bit of external space, we're going to turn into an urban garden. And I would like to see it an actual working farm. Like my goal is that we provide jobs and training for people in regenerative agriculture skills in an urban setting that they can then go and, and apply on their own land or, you know, way down the road, I would love to have a lending, a lending program through our, Venocity. My goal is that we have a parent company. The parent company would be is is called the Convergence Corporation. Um, that's we have a nonprofit already called Convergence Foundation that I, I don't do anything with, but it's going to be for regenerative uh, urban urban ag- urban regenerative agriculture education. Um, hey, sign me up. That's a that's kind of what i'm doing <laughs> right now not kind of that's exactly what i'm doing <laughs> that's awesome because we're we're not doing it yet it's still you know it's on the 10-year plan the whole the whole 
vision is a 25-year plan now to get to a fully carbon negative system, including, but to do that, we also become your trash guy. You know, when we deliver to a, a restaurant, we pick up their waste oil. We also, the truck that I envision in the future also picks up compost and returns it to our warehouse where we have our gardens. If the gardens get overflowed, or once the gardens are full of compost and we can't take any more, then we find a, another local farm that we can partner with. But the goal is we're constantly closing the loop on our logistics. I don't want to send an, a truck to a, a winery without delivering so to pick up wine from like, if I want to, I don't ever want to send a truck to the Beckhams to pick up their wine without delivering something that they need on their property. So if mm. I can deliver, if I can deliver three pallets of finished compost, when I pick up their wine, my truck's not running empty. Right. I, the idea of empty trucks is anathema to a, a sustainable system. And I really yeah. think about the entire system uh, that I'm trying, the logistics, the creation of the product, meaning the wine, all the way to the consumer. If you think about the entire thing as one unit, instead of separating out the warehousing, separating out the farming, start to think of it as almost like a, a almost like a living cell, and you're yeah. just moving, you're moving raw materials around in a cell. Once right. you start to really think about it on a cellular level, then <laughs> like there's no, there's no wasted energy in your cell. Right. Like when, when you're delivering APT to one side of the cell, the delivery system either goes back to the other side of your cell with some new product or it gets broken down and reused. You know, right. there's never, there's no way the waste products are constantly being recycled inside this inside the space and that's it i once you start working with venosity i not it's not there yet when the truck is up and running this is the next step is when you're working with us we're your trash man and we're also the supplier of nutrition to farms that we work with so we're constantly running our trucks full hopefully reducing waste throughout the throughout the process um the warehouse that i see in in south central there's a place that i've looked at uh, that i just love it's got enough outdoor space to put in a, a a plastic beetle i don't know if you're aware of scarab tech but they do a pyrolysis a, they do a pyrolysis machine that superheats plastic and breaks it down into its component parts meaning you get propane which wow. Propane is fossil fuel, creates car, it's creating, you know, more carbon in the atmosphere. But if you let your, if you let your plastics go into the ocean, they just break down into carbon and night and nitrous oxide. Anyway, nitrous oxide is a way worse, um, a way worse atmospheric greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So there's, we're in these huge it, uh, problems that can you even, trap that gas that the beetle you you can trap that gas they're right now they're use they're using it for heating you know they they use it as an electric yeah that's generator. what i was thinking yeah, yeah the could... scarab tech is basically working right now to replace diesel generators right. and that's i mean not that you would need 
heating in a warehouse per se, but maybe the offices part, or you could. But you need you a, could you, even you need air conditioning. Yeah, yeah, you, you need, need AC. Go. And if you can yeah. start to sequester another waste stream, like the plastic waste stream, it's what is it, 400 million tons of plastic a year that we're producing and just throwing away. Yeah. So, you know, that's the next big carbon's the big one. And then the next big one is going to be what do we do with all this goddamn plastic? If you can yeah. break it down and make it into and turn it into energy with a smaller carbon footprint than letting it break down in the ocean, then do it. And we all like, well, anyway, that's Scarab Tech. It's that's a $30,000 machine right now, which I have every intention of owning one someday. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, what role does promoting local consumption of wine? I mean, I know there's there's always going to be trucks because, you know, you can't farm at the at the scale necessary within an urban setting. Uh, but so you're going to, you know, you've, you, you're going to have your separation of rural and urban, um, to some degree, totally. but, but you could certainly cut down on, you know, imported wine or, you know, let's say Washington wine coming to Southern California, as much as I love Washington wines, that's, um, you know, what, what, to what degree should, <laughs> should, should we all just be drinking from kegs that were grown in the, uh, su- suburbs, you know, I love it. I love I love the the local vor eat eat and drink what's produced locally. I love that ethos, but it's not where we're at. And no. you know, I'm not. I can you can preach that all the time, all you want, but people right. are still going going to go to Drago Centro downtown and spend yeah. three hundred dollars on a bottle of Barolo. They're going to do yeah. it every night. So yeah. rather than change, you know. I, I can tell all the Oklahomans I know that if you stop eating meat, it's going to make you healthier and you'll do, it'll be great for the climate. Nobody's doing it. You yeah. know, you, right. people have, we all have our desires and I, I don't think that we're going to change human behavior. So what I'd really like to do is find a way to allow us to be, to have these human desires, but to do it in a way that doesn't destroy the planet. And that's really Maybe it's not possible. You know, it's arguable that it's possible. But if you continually recycle and continually close the loops on waste and energy, I think that it's, I think we can get pretty close. Uh, I, have, I have a question for you. Yeah. Uh, so you represent uh, several producers and, and projects. What, what are the requirements that you have for those people, you know, for, for a winery? Uh, I so I look for a couple things. Um, first off, we taste the wines. I, I really like the natural wine ethos, but there's also a lot of. I feel like there's a lot of wine that has flaws that I don't appreciate. And I kind of grew up with a palate. I grew up in these restaurants, and I say grew up. My my palate and my wine <laughs> education started um, slinging wine at yeah. two in they, manhattan those matured when i was in my <laughs> 20s and early 30s in manhattan selling like classic wines we sold a lot of old bordeaux we sold great burgundy mm-hmm. i had a palate that got attuned to classic uh representations of classic regions i love a barolo that tastes like a barolo i love mm. you know a 
Jevry Chambertin that tastes like a Jevry Chambertin. The, so you, uh, you you like you so, like natural wines. So I like I like the ethos of natural wines. Actually, right. But that my are palate clean. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. My palate's my palate's classically trained, but I like the ethos of natural wines. And sometimes they don't always link up. There are a lot of natural wines out there that are that are delicious, but they don't have those classic flavors, the classic fruit and acid balance. Um, there's sometimes, you know, there's sometimes some bacterial issues in those wines that I don't always appreciate. Other people might, uh, but it's not my palate. So we taste everything first. If the pal- if the wine feels classic or in that kind of in-between classic and natural, because I, I really... The natural wines, I feel like, have a lot of texture and life to them that uh, chemically induced wines certainly don't. Um, we check out their farming. Uh, I try to watch vineyards on Google Earth to see if they've been tilling. I, some of my vineyards do till every year. Some of them don't. Um, my goal is that we move everyone to no-till. It, it's not yeah. a... It's not a immediate proposition. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a wino from Oklahoma who's never been a farmer. So for me to ask a farmer to change the way that they work is a really presumptuous, uh, yeah. and, and, you know, it's just frowned on. I feel like I'm not, I'm not a professional. So for me to tell you how to run your business is, is rough. So it's, I find people that share a similar value proposition that, you know, carbon sequestration is probably the most important thing we can be doing right now, more important even than, than making the wines because, you know, 40 years from now, all of our classic regions are going to be too hot to create classic wines. You know, we're going to be seeing more and more champagne coming out of, or more and more sparkling wine coming from England. We're going to see more and more great Pinot Noir coming out of Canada. And the places that we've grown to love, like Cote Roti and Burgundy, are going to become, you know, excessively hot for what we do. So this this climate thing is literally going to change the face of my industry, whether we like it or not. So we better yeah. start working on it. Um, anyway, I got I got I'm still trying to talk about what I what I'm looking for. So I'm looking for people yeah. that are at baseline. Uh, no sides, no pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, except I, I say that people, everybody damn near uses uh, copper sulfate Bordeaux mixture, especially in Italy where they have uh, more mildew pressure. Um, that said, I try to convince them and I've got, I've gotten to some extent a little bit of success. I've been trying to get my Italians to use less Bordeaux mixture or maybe even completely stop it on a portion of their vineyard and instead of using Bordeaux mixture try to uh, try to stop. propagate mycelium in their soil that will help uh, help fight against downy milk powdery mildew uh, it's possible it just takes years of effort to do this you know it's changing changing vineyards that have been farmed one way for sometimes 30 years to say oh we need you to do it this way now is like I said, it's a big ask. So I'm asking my producers at the bare minimum, we work. So I said, no sides. What I really mean is, um, practicing organics. There's no, we don't use any artificial fertilizers, no inorganic fertilizers, uh, manure compost are kind of the way to go. And I try, let's see when I've 
look for producers and I really haven't looked for producers in a, in a, in a year or so because I don't want to grow the book without getting better. Like it, we can continue to grow, but if we're growing and not, if we're just growing for growing sake, but we aren't improving our practices, then we're just continually making the climate problem worse. So I haven't pushed to grow the book very much in the last couple of years because I've been trying to figure out how to make our business better instead of bigger, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So I think we're at a place where we've, we can see some actual improvement in supply chain that are really close at hand. And because of that, the company as a whole has started to taste again. We're thinking about growing some of our domestic production uh, or producers because we might be able to ship them without fossil fuel. And then I love that. that's, I, I mean, I, I think you bring this up on the, the website, but I was pointing out, you know, one of the, the upside, the sort of, is that it's a win-win when you adopt a lot of these practices that you're encouraging in the wine. Anyway, you end up with arguably better wine, you know, all things being equal because you've created, you know, it's inextricable. If you have a healthy soil, you're going to have a healthier plant. And, I just think and, of living soil as being, uh, yeah. you know, you've, if you've got living soil, then all the microbes in the soil are creating terroir in your wine. And, and yeah. I think that there's some, I've heard some people, some classicists argue against this, but it's not, it's just patently not true. Like if you have more microbial action on your on your roots then you have more mineralization of the rocks around the roots that are the the microbes are breaking down those rocks creating literally creating the terroir that's feeding into the the roots that are being that are uptaking the nutrients into the grapes so the more life you have in the vineyard the so, the more soil life you have the more terroir you have uh, can they plant? Let me propose a question for you. Yeah, and, and this ties into something else I was going to ask you about. The the first part of this question is why do we care about terroir? Like, is it really? Do we really? I mean, like, why is that the the mark or the the you know the target that we're aiming for? Or and is that the right word for it? Is it something else? Is it something about an energy and a a living? aliveness uh a vibrancy or something you know is there you know what i mean like because terroir is like you know if we, if we can taste dirt and you know wildfire and like right. you know dust in our wine you know like and you know terroir in california can be sand and you know raisins and that's not necessarily totally. what so it's like and I've i've been wrestling with this idea of really you know, I think there's an alchemy that we're shooting for, not really terroir, but it, but it's, it's that, it's something about pulling the essential elements out of a place and time without altering it, but not just reflecting it like in a mirror, but you're transmuting it. You're like somehow transforming and, and it's undergoing this sort of alchemy that becomes this thing that is well, beautiful and ineffable. Um, I don't know. So those are well, my thoughts. I mean, I'll, I'll turn it on you. I, I mean, 
A, why why is terroir that thing? Uh, Three hundred years of marketing. The French were brilliant. <laughs> exactly right. Right, exactly. like they've the French have yeah. brilliantly defined right. every space a, that they create. A, I think and, at this point, it's a real estate um, marketing device uh, for sure. In terms of you know yeah. the value value per square foot of some of these places is absolutely terroir. You know, and and you know. Does Pinot Noir need X amount of minerals to to be, you know, the most Pinot Noir? Like, is, right. So, so is 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 your Pinot um, from Burgundy or your Pinot from Oregon? Are they do they taste similar because they have the each have the same microbial balance underground that are pulling out the correct amount of minerals to that feed the Pinot Noir to its pinnacle of Pinot Noirness, um, or are those microbes skewing their mineral choices based on the soil? I think is mm-hmm. like, it's a hard question for me to derive right now, but the, does the microbial population derive terroir or is it the soil or is it the, the rocks and the minerality? that those mm. microbes live off of. So if right. you're, I, I think about the micro uh, microbial population as the sheath between the root and the, and the rock. And that yeah. population is, is it stable because of the rocks or is it stable because of the roots? And if it's stable because of the roots, then does it just pull out all of the minerals that those roots need? Or if it's stable because of the rocks, does it pick out all the minerals it can and then the roots up take those minerals regardless? Does that right. make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 just, I, I question you, that sense I, of terroir. Well, I know you've heard of Zach Bush, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. Um, but I mean, I just was listening to something and he was talking about how, you know, we aren't, we aren't ourselves. Like our mind and our nervous system isn't something that comes from our brain. It actually comes from like the microbes in our guts that are right. like producing the serotonin and the signals that our brain uses like they are playing the keyboard like the keyboard is the brain is just the keyboard but the microbes are actually typing the keys and writing the script of your of your life and and i feel like there's something like that i mean maybe that's a very oversimplified metaphor analogy but it's it's uh, i'm sure it's something similar in the soil where it's like i think it's a similar like question like maybe the microbes are just uh, maybe I wonder if the microbes decide what the Pinot tastes like. So, yeah. so this is where my, this is where it's, I think it's very symbiotic and I, I don't like, I like that Zach Bush analogy, but I also think that there's got to be more back and forth. Like it's yeah. not, it's not a one way street. You know, we also determine the microbial balance in our gut because of the things that we, right. The things right. that we're eating. So it's, you know, we, we also have, power over them it's back and forth and i think that the pinot noir needs x x y and z and then there's all these microbes underground that are giving it x y z um and then abc and maybe it doesn't have enough of one or two of the things i don't know i'm wondering if the microbes force the extra minerals into the plant because that's what the plant needs or if the plant pulls it's I'm having a real, this is a really good question for me to think about for a long time. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I think 
the use of the word terroir is has stunted our understanding of of wine honestly i think i'm just going to make that statement right now okay. i think we need to make that a question like and that's why i brought it up to you i've just been thinking a lot about it and you seem like the perfect person to pose this question to that i just think it it's too it's become too vague at this point it's sort of like using the term god you know it's like well who's god and what you know what do you like is that god with a little g capital g you know and it depends on you know what i mean it 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 has become an answer when it should still be a question and and i and i think with terroir i'm now talking um in both cases but um yeah it's just like i just started thinking about that recently where it's just like the things that you're you're you know sort of struggling with in you know audibly that i'm listening to are the things i think are implicit in this the fact that we we've oversimplified things and and there's still so many things to to sort of wrestle with about that that i think don't explain it isn't easily explained by the term terroir and it, and it's again i'm going back to like I... What are we really trying to do and why it's it's it has something to do with letting nature express itself with as little human overt manipulation. I mean, obviously, we we have created this culture that involves shepherding this whole experience into a drinkable, delicious thing form. (laughs) But but what that what that is that we're doing, like what we're trying to express is not it's something more than terroir or it's something that's deeper than terroir i would say um and i guess that's i guess that's what i'm getting at like and why and why it's important for that experience to for so many of us like why we're realizing it's it's how little we can touch that is important um to have have you been paying have you been paying attention to the you know, the LA wine project that, uh, Abe Schoner is doing. Yeah. I, 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 here. I think, I mean, I, you know, I was just telling Abe that he should, uh, get that vineyard, the lone wolf vineyard, uh, certified as a, a UNICEF heritage heritage site. Like totally. Um, I mean, just seeing what it has done over the years, it's like you, there's basically like multiple species of vines now by virtue of, being left alone and yeah. letting and letting evolution propagate take place. With, by seed right how, letting how propagate, amazing. yeah and by and by you know what we call layering or provenage or you know like, like the french have like 10 words for when the vine goes into the earth and and roots itself and then comes right. back out again that that's sort of uh, that like super organism of a vineyard basically that's it and you know the i think i said something to to you like this uh some other time but i you know the real problem with a vineyard. The the number one issue with a vineyard is the concept of a vineyard, right? Right. It, we didn't. That's not at all how these plants evolved, and they never like no grape evolved to be in a monoculture, right? And all, right. almost all the vine- vineyards are these big monocultures. That's why like multiple um, <clears throat> multiple species cover crops are so popular you're starting to reintroduce these biodiversity this biodiversity that the plants have all evolved with and we've in the last two or three hundred years we've really pulled all the biodiversity away from them and then tried to make them exist in a you know in a 
glass vial or in a, you know, just by themselves as a experiment, but it's not the way that these plants grew or evolved. Or, you know, if you want to make a terrific Pinot Noir, let it, let those Pinot Noir vines, um, grow the, the way grow and propagate the way they would in uh in a natural setting which i don't even know yeah. what that looks like anymore i guess it's crawl, climbing up redwood trees yeah yeah i mean and that's the thing i i, I mean we use i'm just throw, jump throwing back the concept of terroir we use that for vineyards that are imported vines that are irrigated. And to me, that's absurd. Like there is no terroir at that point. Like you have, this is not a native species and it is not using the natural resources where it's grown. So it's why are you even trying to talk about terroir? Like in that sense at that point, like unless you're dry farming native vines, what's terroir? (laughs) You know what I mean? And I'm not saying you can't make a beautiful, wonderful vine, but let's, you know, like it can't, we, you can't use the same concept for, you know, like, like a native vine or or something like the lone wolf vineyard where, you know, transplanted vines, imported vines have now gone wild and sown things that have adapted and become native, um, that are dry farmed, have never been touched basically. That's terroir, you know, like that. I think you could start talking about terroir, but the, the huge monocultures of Napa, you know, that are irrigated and, and imported vines and species. It's like, well, right. great. I mean, you make delicious wine, but stop talking about terroir. You know, I, I'm, I, maybe this is when I talk about terroir, I almost never, am, I'm almost never referencing a new world wine. Uh. And I can't imagine, I can't recall the last time I was talking about a new world wine and I talked about terroir. That, that mm-hmm. really is a term that I almost reserve for European wines and European wines of the, of a place and, and, uh, and style. Right. Um, <clears throat> and then it has more, and then it has a little more application, but even then it's still this nebulous term. that doesn't have any, I, do you know, do you know, uh, Peter Bader Malberg, um, Peter's uh, Austrian producer, um, architect. It's really familiar. Originally, his wines are rather pricey, uh, but they're they're worth finding seeking out. He is the first Austrian that I ever met that talked specifically about uh, microbes. And when I, I was over, mm. I was there about seven or eight years with him. And if you taste his wines, next to wines made. 10 feet away, you know, he, I'm trying to think of one of his neighbors. Um, Oh, I'll come, I'll come back to it. There's a family over there. That's like their family tree must look like a fist. Um, I can't, I can't, I'm blocking the name who sounds like an Oklahoma ism family, (laughs) family tree that looks like a fist. Just everybody's got the same last name for like two, two, right. (laughs) But, um, I'm, I'm totally blocking the name. Um, anyway, Peter's wines have uh, life and texture that a lot of his contemporaries do not. And specifically talking about that texture and the life in his wines, he's, he said, you know, I used to think I was a winemaker. And then I realized I, I was really just a 
uh, shepherd of vines. And then mm-hmm. he made wines for a few more years and he said, you know, and then I thought, then he realized I'm not a shepherd of vines. I'm a microbe farmer. And he said yeah. he completely changed the way he worked. He went from, he, he says now he doesn't mess with the vines at all. He just lets them be. He's a microbe farmer through and through. But what that does is pulls out all the, all the loose and the silica and all of the, the microbes break down all of these minerals that give the plant more life and give the finished product this incredible texture. And like they're, they're beautiful wines that last for decades. So, and he uses terror. Like when we were talking, he brought up terroir a couple times and he, I think you said life force. And he said his, for him, you know, his, the life force in his vineyard is, is his terroir. Yeah. And that, and that may just, uh, you know, that gets back to the microbes. Yeah. I should, should, uh, you know, wrap this up with a question about just how people can find out more about what you're doing, you know, support what you're doing, you know, get some of the Venocity selections. Well, we have, where, a, where we... you know, we have our website, VenocitySelections.com. Um, that's direct consumer for California and a couple other states that we can ship to. And then in New York and uh, and California, we're also you know, we're also distributors. So also find our website and you can link with Great. me or one of our salespeople there. Um, we really mm-hmm. do have a rather small book. I think we're about 16, maybe 17 producers, but there's, they're all farmed organic or better. Um, we've got Troon up in the Applegate Valley in Southern Oregon, which is, they're just like the most forward thinking vineyard on that scale. They actually have a lot of land that they can do a lot of yeah. really great work on. They're creating giant biodiverse swaths of their property that'll be planted to native species. They're really pushing for a regenerative organic certification. I think they're going to get it in the next couple of years. I'm great. very impressed with what they're doing. So it's really, you know, my company only exists to support the producers and try to get their products to, to markets better. You know, we're not perfect yet, but, and we won't be perfect for 20 years, but we're going to make a damn solid effort <laughs> to get there. Well, it looks like, am, am I right in thinking you guys have the corner on the biodynamic market in, in the Applegate Valley as far as distribution goes? I mean, I think that it is just true in there that's biodynamic. I right thought now. you had another, I thought you had another, uh, not from, from I there. don't have anybody from Applegate. Um, I've got Beckham up in, uh, Willamette that I work with. They're not, they're, farming biodynamically but they're not certified through demeter yet um they're it's a family oh. operation and they're do they oh maybe do they amazing. get some grapes from they, they must buy, get some grapes they, from Apple they bought they buy some grapes from troon okay um, that's what and actually that's you know i i went up to see the beckhams and they told me about troon years ago when troon was going was was going being their sold new... and going from yeah. conventional to what these guys are doing now uh, which is really forward thinking yeah yeah they're they're kind of doing like the tabless creek thing where they are just taking the whole landscape as a holistic expression and wine is is a is a part of it i mean it's sort of the the showpiece of that but the whole thing is an organism the whole 
world yeah. that they are creating is is a holistic unit. It's, it's it is really beautiful what they're doing. Yeah, and that's kind of that's our goal is we find more and more producers working like working in that manner, or we find producers making terrific wine that are open to making the change. And you know, we'd I'd love to lead my lead a producer from regular conventional agriculture through the process into something that's much more regenerative. Um, one of our, we've got a biodynamic, uh, biodynamic guy in Italy, uh, Poderi Erica, and they just stopped tilling two of their hectare, which is a, a little, it's a little thing, but they only, this is the first time they've even considered it. And they, I have asked them for years if they'd consider stopping tilling. And they sent me an email this, this winter and said, Hey, just so you know, to help support your carbon ambitions, we stopped tilling two, two hectare to see how it goes. And, uh, you know, Quercia Grossa, another Tuscan producer of ours is working. He's planting a new vineyard, which is, you know, going against that concept of vineyard as a bad thing. Although he's planting it with uh, biochar that he's created from his, from his cuttings. Uh, I got him, I got him on a biochar kick last year and he's actually oh, making, great. making good with his, his effort to, sequester carbon in his vineyards we didn't even I talk about that. biochar alternative forms of energy and carbon sequestration so this is yeah. you know this is just the wine company that we've been talking about and some logistics but there's also you know to really create a, a cell a cellular a working cellular cellular unit in a biomimicry kind of idea um we've got to have powerhouses there's many many other aspects of this uh you've seen system I, <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope you've seen the documentary the need to grow uh it's narrated by rosario dawson and it's got um these power plants that are produced biochar as their byproduct yes um yeah, you know what I'm talking about I they, don't, and electricity I, oh my I god no don't. you should see that documentary uh, it's amazing. Uh, it's been on my, I haven't seen it. And I know that there are people make that those power plants exist. And I've got a friend that helped finance one in the Netherlands. And it's basically it's, like a greenhouse that produces methane that fuels the furnace that creates the biochar, which create, which also uh, emits enough energy to create electricity. Uh, like it's a soul. I mean, and it's all passive. It's like, Right. It's just a loop. And then the byproduct are these usable things like electricity and biochar for fertility and powering a whole city block from one of these little power plants. Um, offline. Uh, let's. I, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll, <laughs> oh, no, it's the Rosario lesson. Uh, the need to yeah. grow. I'll check yeah. it out. Yeah. There's, um, uh, there are lots of power initiatives that I want to get involved with that can be applied to, you know, farm settings, warehouse settings, like small microgrids that will start to you know, allow people to rethink their connection to big business. I want people to yeah. rethink their connection to big business and start to think about their connection to earth and themselves. And, you know, it's a community-based everything. And this is maybe like my final, my final question here will be sort of like a, a, a setup, but what, what can the average person do who, who cares about what you care about like I do and, and wants to promote it in their own way. You know, I just try to vote with, I, I mean, for us at home, I'm not talking about 
not talking about work and venosity and how to create these systems. We just try to vote with our dollars. You know, yeah. we don't, we've kind of cut out buying new things, uh, try to, try to repurpose and recycle and, and purchase used as often as possible. Um, and we, yeah, make sure that our dollars are going to people that we, that support what we support. So, you know, during this COVID inspired shutdown for the last year, we've had very little opportunity to go out and spend and like waste money on entertainment. So, but we do definitely direct every dollar to go back to a farmer. You know, we spend just as much as we ever did at the farmer's market. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. We just try to keep our money from going to Jeff Bezos and, <laughs> you know, be smart about, you know, if we are going to make a purchase from Amazon, like, is this something that we can get locally? And if we can, like, yeah. let's walk to that shop, that store and get it. Yeah. Um, that's it. I mean, this, for me, this, all of, all Venocity is really a effort to allow people to vote with their dollars for better products. You know, and we want to mm -hmm. bring better products to the market so people can have good things to vote for. I love that. Well, thanks, James. This has been great. I've, thanks, I've, I know we can talk forever, so we'll end it here. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this interview, please leave a review on whatever app you're using to listen. It's a huge help, and I really appreciate it. As James mentioned, we vote with our dollars, and our consumer choices are one of the most effective ways to influence business and agriculture for the better. That's why I started this podcast, and that's why I started my winery, Centralis. I wanted to promote people who are farming in a way that improves life on planet Earth, rather than degrades it. You can support these farmers by shopping at VenocitySelections.com, as well as by buying Centralis wines. All of our wines at Centralis are made from grapes that were grown organically or better. You can learn more and buy wine at VenocitySelections.com. That's V-I-N-O CitySelections.com or at CentralisWine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S Wine.com. It's an easy and delicious way to promote a cleaner, healthier, and more hopeful future for the planet. Thanks.